The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is a very special guest welcoming to the program, Father Joseph Greenwell. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the assistant pastor of Immaculate Conception Church here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father Greenwell. How are you? I'm doing well, Thomas. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father. We also are joined by Father Jenkins. He's also a member of the Society of St. Pius V and the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood. Father, how are you? Very fine. Thank you, gentlemen. Very happy to have my compatriot, Father Greenwell. That's right. That's right. Very exciting. Exciting stuff. Well, Reverend Fathers, I would like to begin tonight by returning to our series on the mysteries of the Most Holy Rosary. And I would like to focus tonight on the third joyful mystery, and that is the Nativity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father Greenwell, I would like like to start with you as the guest of our program here. And there are so many points to ponder in this mystery of the Nativity that we could spend an eternity of programs going through these points, and we could still fall short. So perhaps we can do no better than by beginning this program, by focusing on the love that our Lord has for us. St. Paul says that Christ emptied himself to become a man. And that thought in and of itself is incredible, that almighty, omnipotent God who created heaven and earth would stoop so low as to assume a nature that is infinitely inferior to his own. But even beyond that, Father, our Lord took the lowest possible form of that nature. He became a child, an infant, a baby, and he stooped so low that he subjected himself to a poor, humble teenage woman and and the Blessed Mother. So, Father, what kind of love must our Lord have for us? It it would have been very easy for him to begin his earthly life as a middle-aged very manly man, but instead he chose to stoop so low that he assumed the lowest possible form of an infinitely inferior nature. What kind of love must God have for us to do this, Father? Well, we know that our Lord had an infinite love for us, and yes, he could have come to this world as a teenager or an adult man, but uh, he came to this world as a child to endure all the sufferings of human nature and to give us an example of what love does for one one who loves, suffers for those beloved. And our Lord uh, came to the earth precisely to do that, to suffer. Uh, his suffering was infinite, as only a God's could be infinite. And his suffering actually began in the crib and the 40 days after it, the presentation in the temple. Father, why does our Lord love us so much? What is it that he sees in us to, to do this? I mean, he, he, like I said, he assumed this nature that is infinitely inferior to himself. Why, why does he love us so much? What does he see in our human nature that is so lovable? Well, I personally don't know that he loves us in our fallen human nature because we are so lowly, but all virtue seeks to diffuse itself. God, who is most lovable, seeks to share that love and happiness with others precisely because he has the virtue of love. 
He doesn't have the virtue of faith and hope as we do because those two virtues presume a certain lack or a desire for and lack of possession of. But our Lord loves us uh, so much because people who love diffuse themselves, spend themselves, share themselves with those that they love. Okay, so Father Jenkins, how can we return this love that God has for us? Well, God has created us in his own image. And when we have this sanctifying grace of faith, hope, and charity, also in the uh, in the likeness of God, we can love him in return. We can love him not infinitely, not the same way he loves us, because God loves with a, an infinitely powerful will. We have a an immeasurably inferior will, as you mentioned, Tom. But the fact is, uh, God doesn't require us to love him as he deserves to be loved. He is infinite goodness, and infinite goodness deserves to be loved infinitely. No creature can love infinitely. And so God does not require that of us. All he does, all that he requires of us is that we love him, well, in order to save our souls, to love him more than anything else, to love him more than any creature. Uh, that is exactly the love that will give us the strength to be faithful against any temptation and not fall into mortal sin. If we love him most of all, we will not prefer any other love to his. God does not require us to love him with all of our powers of loving in order to be saved. But in order to enter into heaven, we have to love him with a perfect love. And that is to fulfill the first great commandment, to love him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our will. That is to say, to love him with all of our powers of loving. When our Lord was asked by the young man, what must I do to have everlasting life? Our Lord said, well, keep the commandments. And the young man said to him, well, these I've kept from my youth. And our Lord then said to him, well, if you wish to be perfect, then leave all things and come follow me. So our Lord made it clear that to have everlasting life and be saved, it is not necessary to love him perfectly, just enough to keep the commandments and not to offend him by sin. But what is necessary to um, achieve perfection and to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to love him with all of our heart and mind, soul, and strength. That we can do by the grace of God. And, and there are those who have, beginning, of course, with our Blessed Mother herself as the greatest of all saints. Okay. Father, is it true, could we say that our Lord, he began his life as an infant, as a child, as a baby, because this is the most lovable form of human nature? Everyone knows how, how easy it is to, to love a, a newborn baby. Is this perhaps why our Lord assumed this lowest form of our nature, because he wanted so desperately our love? Well, remember, I mean, the, the lowest form of our nature, uh, in the sense that... Um, we don't see the, the powers developed, but the soul is there. I mean, our Lord's human soul was there from the moment of his conception, right? And so um, you might say that uh, you know, the powers of the soul are, are undeveloped. But in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, you know, the divinity was present there from the very beginning of conception, the instance of conception, and our Blessed Lady. And um, we're, we understand from the creed and from the writings of the fathers of the church that uh, 
that God became man and, in a sense, was made man through the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so it was um, possible for him uh, to become man, as you say, in the fullness of his human powers, as God had created Adam. But uh, he would not have had a human mother. And uh, when, when our Lord came into the world, when the Son of God came into the world, he came and subjected himself to the, the elements of the world, as St. Paul says. And so he came into the world through the agency of a human mother. And that is, that is the astounding thing, really. Uh, that required him to be conceived in her womb and to develop uh, through those months of gestation, to the, finally to the point of being born. The fact that God put himself through all of that is quite remarkable. Uh, well, more than remarkable, it is absolutely astounding and incomprehensible for us. Um, and yet, it is truly wonderful, and we can, we can only marvel at that. This is what we are meant to think about when we meditate on the, on the third joyful mystery, the nativity of our Lord, that he chose to come into a world like this, and when he was conceived in the womb of Our Lady, he was conceived, as it were, in a new garden of Eden, which was Our Lady, Our Lady's original body, and uh, united with her perfectly pure and loving soul. But when our Lord was born, which is what the mystery of the Nativity is all about, He was born into a very hostile world, which greeted Him with ignorance. Well, I mean, what does the Sacred Heart say to Saint Margaret Mary in sixteen eighty? Our Lord said to St. Margaret Mary, Behold the heart which has so loved mankind, but which is greeted by so much forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt. Well, we see, when our Lord was born into the world of our Blessed Lady, that's what greeted him. He was ignored. He came into the world unknown. After all of those generations of his own people were uh, you know, expecting the, the Redeemer, he came into the world in the, in the middle of the night, uh, an unknown entity, right? When his, when the news was announced to the angels, and then the wise men later came to Jerusalem looking for him. What, what greeted him there? The swords of King Herod and his soldiers looking to destroy him. This was the greeting this world had for its Lord and Savior. And, um, our Lord began his, his life on earth in that way. So, uh, we can understand that, uh, Certainly that mirrors what was to come later. Sure. The contempt would come, and finally the contempt unto, unto death. Father Greenwell, perhaps one of the most striking aspects of this mystery of the nativity of our Lord is the absolute abject poverty that our Lord experienced when he came into the world. He did not have a place to call his own. He did not have a, a bed to lay his head. Everyone, Catholics and non-Catholics alike, are, are familiar with the story of our Lord being born to a, a poor carpenter. Uh, they, they, there was no room for them at the end, as sacred scripture says. What, what do we have to learn from this just complete, utter, abject poverty of, of our Lord? As, as I mentioned, obviously, he, here we have Almighty, omnipotent God who created heaven and earth, he very easily uh, could have been born as some great king in the greatest palaces of the entire world, but he chose to be born in a stable amongst animals on a, a bed of straw, warmed by the animal's breath. Why do we, 
why why did our Lord manifest this this great spirit of poverty, and what do we have to learn from that? I believe that He manifested this spirit of poverty, as you say, on Christmas night, because He wanted to teach us that heaven does not use the great things of this world to convert the world, to bring souls to our Lord. God has always chosen the poor. God has always chosen those who did not have a lot. And I think it's similar to the story of Gideon, where our Lord wanted to make it clear that this was his victory, not ours, and that uh, the tools he would use would be the barest, would be the weakest instruments to show his power and his glory. And this was his uh, way of doing so, I believe. I think it is very interesting to note that uh, when the Jews were made aware of our Lord's nativity, he used the highest of creatures, angels. When the Gentiles were made known of this great mystery, he used the lowest of creation, a star, rock, in the sky. And uh, he, he makes use of these poor things to show his strength and to also maybe to allow the poor people to have hope in rising to pleasing Almighty God and doing great things in God. And how can we imitate his example? Well, by the spirit of poverty, by not becoming attached to the things of the world. Whenever he has wanted individuals to do great things, he has many times taken them away from the things of the world. He takes St. Teresa, the child Jesus. Uh, God had many wonderful things that he chose for her. And in, in the, preparing her for this, he took all but one of her sisters to the convent. He took her mother and a young life, and he, he took away a lot of the possessions that her father, who was somewhat wealthy, could afford. And uh, he wanted her heart, and he wanted her heart not attached to the things of this world. And I believe that's why God, in his poverty, uh, gave us such an example that material things are not bad in themselves, but they can easily and do so often distract us from the things of God. And, and following through on that, Father, I'm glad you mentioned St. Teresa the Child Jesus, because as we sit here now, uh, her feast day is just a couple of days away. Right. Tomorrow we have the Feast of the Holy Guardian Angels, and then we will have the Feast of St. Teresa. So I'm, I'm glad her name came up today. Um, but following through with what you said there, I, I think it is uh, you know, important to, to note that um, our Lord Jesus Christ said, I am not of this world. And coming into the world with so little means, I mean, he wasn't even laid in a bed of his own. He was laid in a manger, in a stable, uh, a feeding trough for animals, you know. Again, I can't help but think, and the, the swaddling clothes, I mean, where did they come from? Did Mary bring them from, from uh, Nazareth? Evidently not, right? She didn't bring them from Galilee. They must have just come up with them somewhere. So uh, the fact is, uh, you know, our Lord showed that he was not of this world uh, from the very beginning. And um, so on the cross, he died again, you know, completely despoiled of everything, right? Uh, his covering was, was blood, spittle, and, uh, and tears. So I think that's, that, again, you know, shows um, that our Lord himself came to sacrifice himself for us and to enrich us, certainly not himself. Uh, you mentioned the quotation from St. Paul, he, he emptied himself, and that's exactly what he did. 
literally on the cross, his heart, you know, opened and poured out on the cross for us. And uh, what he poured out on us and our souls was his love and his grace. In that sense, truly, he emptied himself. Father, is there any kind of relationship between our Lord's nativity and what happens at the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the reception of Holy Communion? And it's sometimes said that every time we receive Holy Communion, the Lord Christ is born into our hearts in a certain sense. So is there any kind of connection there between our Lord's nativity and the reception of Holy Communion and the holy sacrifice? Oh, well, yes, definitely. With the nativity of our Lord, okay, we're, we are celebrating his incarnation. Okay, that began, it took place nine months before. But we're celebrating not only the incarnation of our Lord, but its terminus, as it were, to say, in his birth, when he manifests himself. That's why the Epiphany is, was a, actually, is, to this day, is still considered a greater feast than that of Christmas. Because by his birth and the manifestation, uh, our Lord announces that he has come, that the Redeemer is here in the world. Um, and so, in a sense, when we consecrate the Blessed Sacrament, as Father Greenwell and I do every day, by the grace of God at the altar, I mean, we, we realize that, in a sense, we're reenacting the Nativity and the Epiphany there. So our Lord manifests himself there. And our Lord manifests himself in such a way that his body and blood are present uh, sacrificially. He's showing forth his death there on the cross. But, of course, before he can show forth his death, he had to be conceived and he had to be born. And so that's where we begin. By the consecration, we're actually, in a sense, reenacting that that shadowing of the Holy Ghost over our Blessed Lady. There's a prayer that we pray during the offertory time uh, that is prayed just after the priest offers the host and offers the chalice. Okay? Before he goes to the side to wash his fingers, he's bowed low and he makes a gesture with his hands and he brings him down over the bread and the wine. That is an invocation to the Holy Ghost to come down upon those offerings because by his power they're going to be consecrated. <clears throat> Just as it was by the power of the Holy Ghost that our Blessed Lady conceived the Son of God. The Holy Ghost shall overshadow you, shall come upon you, and you shall conceive. This is what Our Lady was told. So that is a very, very important part of the offertory and, of course, the consecration. Father, could you speak for a moment um, about this this mystery of the Nativity from Our Lady's aspect, from her side of things? St. Francis de Sales writes about the fruitful virginity of our Blessed Mother. How is that possible, Father? That seems like a, a contradiction, a fruitful virginity of our Blessed Mother. How is that possible? What, a fruitful virginity yes. that can produce? Well, it's not exactly parthenogenesis, but it is. It is in the sense that, coming from the, the Greek words for virgin and birth, right? Um, we do know that Our Lady remained a virgin. In fact, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Our Lady, she had to have a question answered. When the angel said that she was called by God to be the mother of his divine son, who would be the Redeemer, she had one question to ask about the vow of virginity she had made, because she had promised this to God, and only he could relieve her from that, or release her from that vow. But God did not release her from that. He said that it was by the power of the Most High that she would conceive. 
so she would remain still a human virgin at the same time that God would uh, conceive his own divine son within her. So Our Lady offers both to God the perfect purity of her virginity, but also the fruitfulness of the womb that she gave into God's power for his for his purposes, to bring a savior into the world. That's that's the marvelous thing about uh, Our Lady's offering, and that is when she when she said that she wanted, she was this, the handmaid of the Lord, and she rejoiced in God only, and her lowliness was the key to the fact that God could do with her as he pleased, Reminds us of the words of the gospel. Uh, Those who humble themselves shall be exalted. Our Lady, by her very lowliness, was exalted by that very fact that God could use her without any resistance in her will to be the mother of his divine son and entirely on his terms as he chose it to be. She was entirely open to God's will, whatever God wanted that's a that's a marvelous marvelous example that she said um so again we we see in this from our lady's point of view the answer to your question really is to be found in her own words when she responded to the angel accepting the invitation to become the mother of god she does not say behold the mother of the lord what does she say behold him behold even in becoming his mother she says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, always. That's the spirit of our Blessed Lady. That's what we need to learn from her. Right. Brother Greenwell, no doubt, has some good things to say or add to that, I'm sure. Well, the divine maternity is the greatest of the Blessed Virgin's privileges. Um, in the divine maternity, she became, by the power of God, or she could not have merited the divine maternity. She could have merited the immaculate conception in anticipation of the graces given to her by Almighty God. But the divine maternity was so great. Uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, however, if she had to violate the vow that she made to God, she would have chosen not to be the mother of God. Right. I mean, that's how close her heart was united to Almighty God and her will to God's will, because she made this vow, as Father Jenkins said, God could dissolve, uh, dissolve this vow or uh, dispense her from it. But she knew that it was pleasing to God when she made it, and she knew that it was pleasing to God then, and that's why she said, how can this be, for I know not man. Uh, and God chose the, the from, all, from all eternity in the mind of God, God chose Mary. He knew that Mary was going to be created and that she would remain sinless and the perfect tabernacle for our Lord here on earth. And that's what we have at Christmas. I mean, of course, Christ was already in Our Lady's womb for nine months, but the expression of that love came forth in a miraculous manner at the nativity of our Lord. Father Grima, we just recently finished the month of September, which is dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows. But we, as you mentioned, the, the divine maternity is the greatest gift bestowed upon 
our Blessed Mother, I, I assume also that this would be the greatest joy of the Blessed Mother. Uh, everyone knows that a, uh, that, that a new mother is, is at her happiest after, after giving birth to a child, after bringing a man into the world. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about the joy that our Blessed Mother experienced at the Nativity of our Lord? Well, I think you're correct, especially on a natural level, that every mother is most joyful after she gives birth to the child. But the Blessed Virgin, I, I think her happiness didn't emanate from that, but her em happiness emanated from the fact that now the Savior of the world was here and that soon Satan and his power, uh, what he affected in the garden, the closing of the gates, that they would soon be open. She may not have known exactly how this was to happen, but I believe that just as Simeon, uh, once he saw our Lord, now, O Lord, dismiss thy servant, for I have seen the redemption of Israel. I believe the Blessed Virgin Mary's happiness was on a much higher level than the happiness of a natural mother, but that her divine Son would would truly redeem Israel and the whole world by his uh, shedding of his blood. She may not have known that he was going to be crucified. She may have known that. I don't know exactly what she knew of the scriptures and all the prophecies. But I think her happiness uh, came from the fact that uh, she was able to participate in the redemption of mankind by giving birth to her divine son. Elaine, I'm, I'm quite sure that she knew about the sacrificial death of our Lord from the prophecies of Isaiah, but also in, in asking her to be the mother of the Savior, I'm sure that God, the Father, would want her to know exactly what she was agreeing to and that she was accepting everything that he was offering uh, by way of the sadness and realizing uh, the prophecy of that took place in the temple, right? That her sword would pierce her heart and the, the great suffering would come upon her. Now, whether she knew all of the particulars, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, but the fact, the fact of the sacrificial death sure she did know but um when we when we see that even even in that i mean i can't help but think that our lady took joy simply in knowing that god's will was done and as you say father mm -hmm. that by the suffering of our lord on the cross that the prophecy in psalm 21 would be fulfilled that uh so many many souls would be saved for heaven and snatched from hell um, so even, even in Our Lady's sorrow, she must have taken great solace from that. Mm. Well, Reverend Farlash, we have just a few moments left. So one question that I would like to end with, I'll ask you both this question is, how should we celebrate this great feast of the Nativity of our Lord? Because it seems um, obvious that uh, in, our, in our current world, our current society, that this, this feast has been totally corrupted, um, just, just totally divested of, of everything spiritual and religious and holy. How, how can we practice this uh, practice devotion to this great mystery? How can we celebrate this, this great feast day of the Nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ in a traditional Catholic manner? Father Jenkins. Well, we have to celebrate it throughout the year. In the Rosary, the third joyful mystery of the Rosary. You know, when we meditate on the events we countered to us in the mysteries of the rosary. We're supposed, supposed to relive those. We're supposed to, in our own mind, actually relive those mysteries with our Blessed Mother, with our Lord himself. 
In that sense, if we are, in our imagination, reliving those mysteries, we are meditating on them. So this is not just something we, we do uh, on one day a year, right? Uh, it is something that we, we have to have that spirit with us throughout the entire year. The memory of the incarnation of the Son of God in the womb of Our Lady, her de delivering this child, this, the, this price of the world's redemption, uh, into the world at, her, at the nativity is something that we must keep always in our mind's eye. And uh, not, only, not only do we pray this mystery, this, the joyful mysteries, every Monday and Thursday, but then uh, during Advent and Christmastide, we pray also on Sundays, the joyful mysteries. We're mindful of that central joyful mystery of the Nativity of our Lord. So if we will just keep that before us throughout the year, we'll really have the proper spirit carried with us through Advent, prepare well during Advent, and not start throwing Christmas parties the second week of Advent, okay? But uh, to actually spend a good Advent preparing for the Nativity, as the Church tells us to. The day before the Nativity, Christmas Eve, is actually a day of fast and abstinence. Um, it's, a, it's a vigil to prepare for a great feast day. And this is the, the spirit we should have throughout all of Advent as an anticipation, <clears throat> but not anticipating it by beginning to, to celebrate it already, you know, beginning of Advent. Rather, we should celebrate the day of the birth of our Lord himself <clears throat> and then continue to celebrate that birth throughout the entire period of Christmastide, all the way to February 2nd, and including February 2nd. And keep in mind that Christmas tide, the celebration of our Lord's birth, actually should continue from, from uh, Christmas morning all the way through to, um, to February 2nd, including those 40 days. Not like the world wants to do it. They want to celebrate with all the Christmas pageantry and all the other stuff up to Christmas. And then when the day that Christ is born, we stop celebrating. So the party's over, right? The exact opposite of what it should be. And I know Father Greenwell does agree with that, too. And he, uh, he, Father Greenwell has a great predilection for Christmas hymns. And I know uh, he would love to play. He just loves Christmas hymns. And would love to, he would even play them through Lent to be good, just because he loves them so much. So it's a sacrifice for him to put them away during the Lenten season, I know, because he has a great love for the Christmas season, the nativity, especially the hymns that represent that. So I'm going to turn the floor over to Father Greenwood. There's not much left to say. <laughs> uh, however, uh, you asked how should we celebrate. Yes. As Father Jenkins says, there's three parts. He didn't say this, but as there's three parts to Christmas. There is the preparation. This is what he was talking about with the season of Advent. And uh, that is part of the celebration, but it's not a time for feast. It is a time for mortification. It is a time for some extra spiritual reading and for the appreciation of what Christ has done for us. And then there is the celebration from Christmas to the Epiphany. That is Christmas tide. And then there is the uh, Thanksgiving time for Christmas from the Epiphany and the Sundays throughout uh, the five, six Sundays after the Epiphany. And we should uh, keep those in proper orders, the preparation, the celebration, and the Thanksgiving for Christ's coming and being with us and redeeming the world. Okay. Uh, the world would be a very sad place if there were no Christmas. And it's becoming that way, isn't it? it Truly. Is. Yeah. 
Probably the best thing to read for Catholic people, especially in this country, is Don Garanger's The Liturgical Year mm-hmm. about the Advent and Christmas seasons. Beautiful writing. Yeah. Don Garanger, and the, the writings are available, readily available for anybody who wants to receive them. Father Greenwell, let me put you on the spot real quick. What is your favorite Christmas hymn? Probably the polyphonic Jesu Redemptor. It's a beautiful 16th century monastic hymn that is sung in three and four parts. It's a very beautiful hymn. I, I like that one very much. And there's many others. The, the P.A. Jesu, uh, Pachelbel's Noel. There's a bunch of them. I mean, you have your simple ones that people sing every day and those are nice too but I think that probably the Yezu Redemptor is the one of the nicest ones okay Father Jenkins same question to you well it's not jingle bells <laughs> <I'll tell you>. <laughs> okay <laughs> alright <clears throat> that's a very good question Tom I, I'm fond of them all I mm-hmm. uh, don't have the musical ear that Father Greenwell has right but um, uh, it's just uh, I, I suppose I would have to say that I love the, the simpler Hymns, those we learned in Europe, um, very beautiful. Il est né le bel enfant, in French, is uh, he is born the divine infant. Yeah, that is very beautiful, uh, French hymn. Love that. We'll bring a torch, Jeanette Isabella. You know, that's another very nice hymn that we really, really like. One thing I'd like to do is to um, find some Christmas madrigals and have some of our local talent actually learn to sing them. I'd like to revive them. Uh, there are so many beautiful national customs, so many beautiful cultural customs, like the posada, processions, you know, in Hispanic countries, <clears throat> where they make the, the journey through to the houses, you know, as though they were the, the Holy Family looking for shelter. <clears throat> they sing, they sing, they have very beautiful hymns there. So, uh, there's just so much to choose from. Christmas is so rich with uh, beautiful, simple hymns that are very, very deep uh, and inspire meditation. So, uh, you know, I to encourage people to take advantage of that. Here we are. We're a few months from uh, Christmas itself. Good opportunity to talk about this, the third joyful mystery, because we certainly, certainly should be preparing uh, Advent will be coming upon us before long, before you know it. And uh, we need to be ready to begin Advent with the right spirit. Yep. Praying the third joyful mystery <clears throat> with a great fervor is a, an excellent way to prepare for that. Well, Reverend Fathers, I thank you both for being here tonight. I, I really enjoy doing these these uh, rosary this rosary series with you. We've received a lot of feedback on these programs, so I'd like mm-hmm. to continue uh, and continue the series if we could. And Father Greenwell, I'd like to thank you in particular for being on the program tonight. I hope to have you back soon. Father has great insights on the fourth joyful mystery, too. We're looking <laughs> forward to hearing this. Sounds yeah. good. Sounds thank good. You. I can't wait. Thank you, Father. Thank you, thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And finally, to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.